One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Offscript. My name is Stephen Edgington. As Conservative Party members choose their next leader, can either candidate fix the crises facing Britain? From rising crime to the culture wars, I'm joined by Telegraph columnist Tim Stanley to discuss the challenges awaiting the next Prime Minister. Does it actually matter who the next Prime Minister is? Oh, definitely. And there are differences between them. And one of the most interesting things about the contest is it's, it's sparked a debate about tax. And I think in these two candidates, you have two different, equally valid approaches to conservatism. You have Rishi Sunak's, uh, which is all about steady as she goes, making sure that you can afford to do something before you do it, versus Liz Truss's more radical form of conservatism, which says that things are so broken that the job of conservatives is not just to keep things the same, it's actually to shake things up and that by cutting taxes you'll generate the growth and unleash the private sector in a way that will transform Britain. So I, I found it very interesting to see that competition between them, but it hasn't really gone beyond the tax question. Uh, in many other ways they're similar, and why wouldn't they be? They're of pretty much the same political generation. Can you assess both candidates, put your sort of opinions on the table and see where we're at? Oh gosh. Uh, I, I, I personally like them both. I, the, the fundamental problem is that I think the more interesting candidates didn't make it into the final two. It would have been a much more interesting race if it was, say, Tom Tugendhat versus Kemi Badenoch, because they really would, on everything, represent different perspectives on conservatism. Badenoch, that new radical generation of, of conservatives who think we need to tear everything up and start all over again. Tom belonging much more to the Cameroonite liberal kind of conservatism. So part of the problem is we got the two uh, who didn't provide the most interesting contrast. That said, they got there on very good conservative grounds, which is that they have experience of high office. You would want an ex-chancellor versus a, a foreign secretary. Um, Liz, I think, is, is at heart a libertarian conservative. And so for her, it's all about shrinking the state as fast as possible. That Grover Norquist thing of getting it down to a size by which you can drown it in the bath. Uh, versus Rishi Sunak, who's more of a sort of wonky, geeky kind of conservative, really uh, came up on the, on, the, on the coattails of George Osborne, who's more about good management. Charles Moore, I think, captured him beautifully in The Spectator when he said, this is the kid who got 90% in all his exams at school. The most important thing to Rishi Sunak is accuracy. Uh, and that's where his sense of integrity comes from. Is what you're saying affordable? Is it accurate? Whereas Liz Truss's uh, conservatism is much more about uh, will it improve people's lives here and now and immediately? So I think, that, I think that's a very strong contrast. The one thing I really want to hear from uh, Rishi Sunak more about is his Hinduism. Because we, we, if he wins, 
uh, he will, to my knowledge, uh, be, <laughs> be the first non well, non-Christian leader. I mean, obviously Disraeli was Jewish, but he became a Christian. This, this would be a big moment to have not just an ethnic minority, but a follower uh, of, a, of a very different faith to the one that, we pract that most people practice in Britain. That would be transformative. So I really want to hear far more about his Hinduism and how it shapes his life. Well, I'm just going to start off by asking a few questions about each of the candidates, and then we're going to talk about broader issues facing the country. Mm -hmm. So let's start with Rishi Sunak. You mentioned his religion, Mm -hmm. and you say he's a, almost a technocrat-type figure. Do you think that he has been captured by Treasury groupthink? As he keeps telling us, the interesting thing is that his career is actually based upon a number of significant risks, and he's gone very far, very fast off the back of them. The biggest one which was supporting leave. And it's difficult to say that a candidate who took that risk as a very new MP... Uh, who really was threatening his career, it's difficult to say that that person isn't a risk taker or someone who can be captured. That said, I remember going to a party conference just after Brexit and he was being interviewed by Rob Colville on the stage. And Colville asked uh, Sunak, uh, what do you think will be the biggest benefit of Brexit to Britain? And he said, free ports. And then he talked at great length about low tax zones. And I sat there quietly tearing my hair out chunk by chunk. The point of Brexit was sovereignty, first, possibly borders. Those were the two things that motivated people to vote for Brexit, not free ports, which don't even seem to have happened, as far as I'm aware. They seem to be far harder to do than we realised. So it's not so much that he is someone who is easily captured or doesn't know his own mind, it's that he has himself got a technocratic perspective. And of course, having become Chancellor, uh, he then took over in the middle of a pandemic, he pulled off some very dramatic, most significant, some, probably the most significant policies that were implemented with furlough, and he's now minded to try to defend them. That, I think, is why he looks like the candidate of yesterday, because he's constantly trying to explain the things he's done, uh, while also trying to tell us that he's going to do things differently in the future. Well, the legacy of furlough, the legacy of lockdown is so great, it's difficult to see how he can walk away from it, and the cost of it was the national insurance increase. He wasn't willing to do all of this without finding the money for it. And that ultimately is what's holding his campaign back. That and a perception that he knifed Boris. Those two things, the tax increase and Boris, are what's preventing what I think is otherwise, on paper, the strongest candidate from, from taking the lead. Well, Liz Truss makes this accusation against Sinek that for 20 years there's been an economic consensus in Britain that hasn't been pro-growth. Right. And that Rishi has been part of that consensus in the last few years. Yes, he's had the pandemic his response now to the economic problems is a continuation of those Treasury policies. Yes. So do you think there is any truth in that argument about that consensus that needs to be broken? I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and this is why, as I said at the beginning, the tax argument is so interesting and important. In, in short, and put crudely, and there'll be lots of people who disagree with this, what we've done for the last 10 years or so is we have said uh, that the Bank of England will, on the quiet spend lots of money through QE by just flushing money out into the public sphere, which particularly benefits the rich people and businesses. But at the same time, in order to keep things from falling apart, the Treasury would be miserly. So the Treasury would cut benefits and would also, as with the national insurance increase, make sure that it pays for everything through taxation. The Patrick Minford Liz Trust School of Economics says it should be the other way round that what you should be doing is the Treasury should be encouraging growth through tax cuts and maybe some infrastructure spending, a little bit of borrowing because, you know, as, as long as interest rates were low, we could afford to do that. 
The people who should have guaranteed the sound money were the Bank of England. It should have been the Bank of England that shouldn't have been printing all this cash, should have raised interest rates to uh, a higher level sooner so they were sustainable around 3 or 5%, which is historically perfectly normal. So there are two conservative but different takes on how you make the economy work. And I think probably what we've needed for a while is the Liz Truss approach, but we've not been getting it, in part because the bank has been printing all this money and creating an inflationary pressure, and the Treasury has been reluctant to take risks when it comes to spending. There's a real conservative instinct against trusting experts, Mm. and you can trace this back throughout history. Look to Lord Salisbury, who I've been studying recently. He absolutely despised experts who he thought was captured by their own vested interests in whatever area they were supposedly experts in. And this campaign ultimately, in in some ways, comes down to do you trust the experts or not? Rishi's that expert candidate. As you say, he he passed all these exams. You know, he sort of studies the detail and trusts is more Boris-esque in her relationship with, uh, with experts. So do you think that on that broader, almost philosophical point, Should we be trusting the experts? No, I don't trust experts. (laughs) I don't even trust the ones I should probably listen to. I don't always trust doctors, by the way. At the very least, I get a second opinion. If someone's going to cut me open, I don't just say, you are the voice of hierarchy, the priesthood of the surgical table. I will do whatever you say. No, I ask for a second opinion. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Uh, This is what uh, Michael Oakeshott wrote about in the middle of the 20th century. And it's one of the defining uh, conservative characteristics is a suspicion of government based upon pure rationality and a suspicion of the priesthood of experts who try to tell us what is the right thing to do. Now, whenever people hear that, they instinctively think that doesn't sound very conservative because surely conservatives are about authority and hierarchy. We like priests, we like queens. Why on earth wouldn't we trust doctors or teachers to tell us what to do? And that's one reason why many conservatives found Brexit repellent because they said, look, with Brexit, you're ignoring the economists, the president, uh, the EU's leaders. You're ignoring all the technical experts who know know the right thing to do. So that's an unconservative thing to do. But what Michael Oakeshott argued is that uh, post-Enlightenment, too many people in the West settled upon the view of government as a matter of technique. The government was was a question of uh, the obviously right things to do, that you develop a caste of people, as in C-A-S-T-E, a a caste of people who will run Western governments. And because it's so self-evident what is the right thing to do, they'll probably all do the same thing, and we we should be inclined to defer to them because they have our best interests at heart. Uh, And this is actually quite unconserved in many ways, partly because it can lead to that caste of people making huge errors that there's no pushback against. They tend to override traditional forms of authority. They tend to override custom. And they just tell you, this is, what the, thi- this is the thing that you ought to do uh, because it is self-evidently that this is the right thing to do. And because I work for the Treasury or I have a PhD in PPE from Oxford, I know what I'm talking about and you don't. So the classic example is Brexit. At face value, the experts, we should have listened to them, they said, don't do this. But the experts in their expertise, well, where did their expertise come from? What makes someone an expert in running things? What is that based upon, apart from the fact that they do run things? And in the course of promoting the EU, they actually overrode older forms of expertise, older traditions and customs that told us there was a different way of doing things. They overrode the sovereignty of parliament. They overrode common sense when it came to things like the borders or control of your own currency. So in other words, this, the rise of this overly, overly rational approach to politics, do all your sums add up, uh, is this good for your health, all these sorts of 
liberal modern bourgeois attitudes being enforced by experts, by this caste of experts, this is a very unconservative outcome. Uh, and yet it's, it's become really our way of doing things in this country. And it's, it's how we've allowed banks and we've allowed uh, the Treasury and the NHS and teachers to tell us what to do, even when some of our more conservative instincts tell us they might be getting something wrong. Now, I think the best thing about this conservative leadership race, or in fact any Tory leadership race, is that the candidates have to at least try and appeal to the membership. Yes. And that means putting out some conservative ideas for mm. once. They're not pressured by The Guardian or by sort of North London elites anymore. They have to focus on one group of people, and this group of people is on the right. Yes. I mean, it is today, not historically or, or always, but today it really is. Um, and Liz Truss is an interesting sort of paradox in a way because her background is as a Lib Dem, as a Republican. Everyone's mm -hmm. seen that old speech of hers at the Lib Dem conference. And, of course, more recently as a Remainer. And yet she is the front runner. She is the, the, part, the candidate of the right of the party, as it were. Do you think that as sound conservatives, we can trust Liz Truss with the zeal of a convert? Of course, and most people love converts because it's flattering. Uh, when someone converts to your cause, your party, or your church, what they're saying is, I was wrong all these years, and you're right. <laughs> is it genuine? So, that, is she an opportunist? Oh, know? no, 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 no. I think it's probably genuine. Uh, and I, I think also to go from Lib Dem to Conservative, to go from Republican Lib Dem to Conservative is not that big a leap, actually, because the modern Conservative Party is really a Liberal Party. It's not a Conservative Party. And here's where I have to disagree with you about the point about uh, the two candidates competing for people's votes. It all depends upon the paradigm of the leadership election. So if it had been a choice between Kemi and Tom, just to row back to that idea, if it had been Kemi versus Tom, they really would have been debating the ideas and the policies, and they would have offered two very different programs for government. When it's Liz versus Rishi, although, as I say, they have a profound disagreement over tax, which I'm, I'm excited by, on everything else, they totally agree. Or on almost everything else, they totally agree. Because paradigmatically, they are products of the Cameroonian generation of liberal conservatives. So they're actually offering us stuff, but it's in an incredibly narrow field. So what is the key thing they're doing? Promising to cut our taxes. It's an auction. And I, at the last hustings, I expected Rishi Sunak to come on like Oprah Winfrey and say to the audience, you get a tax cut, and you get a tax cut, and, you. and the audience will go, ah, this is ridiculous. That's, first up, that is unconservative. This contradicts Rishi Sunak's own premise that the conservative thing to do is to balance the books. So it's an unconservative way to behave, but it also means the debate is purely about one thing, which is how do we shrink uh, the public sector and how do we get business to grow things again? Well, there are other spheres of interest to conservatism. One is culture, which is very difficult to talk about. The other, which ought to be easier to talk about, and I think is far more on the public's minds, is the state. Conservatives are pro the state. They don't think it should be big, but they think it should have authority and integrity. That's always been their view. They believe in state and church, and the marriage of the two, by the way. And I'm surprised that they're not talking about the fact that right now, if, if I was to have a heart attack and you were to call an ambulance, we can't guarantee it would come. Uh, if I were to mug you and were to call uh, the police, we can't guarantee they would come. That, the state is failing. Under, under the Conservatives. So how do the Conservatives build a stronger state? They're barely talking about that. And that's because they're both coming from this narrow paradigm of, I know what conservatism is, it's tax cuts. Well, it's not just that.
and it's Margaret Thatcher. And, and I want to talk about her yeah. in a minute. But one more question on trust. Do you think that she's competent? I mean, if you look at her previous experience as a minister, there aren't too many successes or massive achievements one could point to in her many, many years as a cabinet minister. Yeah. Maybe you disagree with that. Um, so, and there are people, you know, there are concerns about Truss's confidence. I think Dominic Cummings is one who, who's a real critic of hers, right. and who says in particular that she has some very interesting and, and perhaps even dangerous views on foreign policy, for example. On her, you know, she, he, he basically accuses her of sort of being a warmonger in, in terms of Russia and, 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 right. and that sort of area. So there are some concerns, and if you sort of speak to to, to, to Tories, you know, sort of on the right of the party. They might, there are some whispers, I think, that, who, that are concerned about Liz Truss. I mean, they've got to support her in the open now because she's their guy against Rishi. Yes. But underneath there, I think there are some concerns about competence and a few other sort of personal traits of hers. Well, there are others who I would respect, like David Frost, who disagree and say she's very good. Uh, secondly, it would be hypocritical of me as a Brexiteer, who for the last couple of years have said, but look at all the trade deals we've signed with Papua New Guinea. <laughs> it would be hypocritical of me having boosted those trade deals to now say they didn't count for anything. No, Liz Truss made a splash uh, when she was uh, in charge of those deals. And as Foreign Secretary, initially when the Ukraine happened, uh, she re- received plaudits for her handling it, and particularly her handling of the Russian foreign minister. So I, I, I don't know if that's fair or true. Uh, I also think a low bar has been set by Boris Johnson. It will all come down to how her number 10 is managed, who organises it, uh, and her ability to delegate and command a team. That's more important. Delegation is more important than the individual competence when it comes to being Prime Minister because you're not directly in charge of any one department. You're just overseeing everyone and trying to set a general uh, theme. But I, I would just add, we shouldn't have had such a long contest. It's ridiculous. That's one reason why we've got this auction. And what people should really be voting upon is character and experience. And if they look at her and they don't trust her on either of those, it's perfectly conservative to say, therefore, I cannot vote for her. And I'm not going to deny that if you look at his successes when it comes to furlough, whether you agree with it or not, it was a remarkable policy. I think Sunak does beat her on experience. OK, Margaret Thatcher, both candidates are trying to replicate her right-wing credentials yes. and her radicalism. Is it time for the Tories to get over Margaret Thatcher? Oh, if, if they just read a book about her, I'd be happier. If they just actually understood what Charles she had Moore's done. Charles Moore's book, for example. Well, Charles Moore's excellent book. Uh, as, uh, and as he has pointed out, uh, you don't become Maggie Thatcher overnight. She did it after four years in opposition. It took time. And then her first few years as prime minister were a disaster. There was a horrible recession. She was rescued by inflation dropping in the Falklands, right? She delayed doing privatization until much later. Someone wrote a very good piece. Um, I think it might have been on, yes, it was on Unheard arguing that the two candidates represent the two different Thatchers stretched across her 11 years in office, Uh, that Sunak is the early Thatcher, which was an obsession with balancing the books and trying to set a direction for economic policy, but actually quite cautious when it comes to tax and privatisation. Liz Truss is the later Gloriana Margaret Thatcher, the Nigel Lawson years, where you start cutting tax uh, and you become rather more imperious and rather more revolutionary in your policy. Either way, Thatcher was... First of all, far more cautious uh, than people give her credit, but also she was far more cultural than people give her credit for as well. Um, There was a culture war going on in the early 80s, and Thatcher was very much within the centre of it. This nonsense modern idea that she was a libertarian is just not true. She was very much on the side of social conservatives. She was perceived as being anti-immigration. She was perceived as being pro-family. 
She had a different methodology for achieving those things. But the goal of Thatcherism was not to create uh, yuppiedom. The goal of Margaret Thatcher was to create uh, something much closer to old, an old-fashioned one-nation consensus. It's just that it didn't happen. I think there are some social conservatives who would disagree with your analysis of Thatcher's alleged social conservatism. I mean, she passed very, very few bits of legislation that tackled that issue. I think, what's the, the really uh, controversial um, thing about banning uh, in schools teaching about homosexual Second practices? 28. Yes, that, mm. I think that's one of the, the only bits of social, socially conservative right, legislation. Right, but she did she, do it. And given that conservatives have redefined themselves in the last 10 years as the party of social liberalism, uh, that is Wasn't a, she pretty silent, I mean, generally on these things? I mean... Well, yeah, partly because of her religion, ironically. Yeah. Partly because she's a far more religious candidate than uh, Liz certainly is, and we don't know much about Rishi. Uh, she came from a, uh, a wing of Methodism that believed the most important thing was free will. Uh, and not, by the way, because she wanted people to choose to be libertines, but because she believed you could only truly be saved by God if it was an act of free will. And so therefore she wasn't inclined to tell people what to do, which is why she didn't support things like Sunday trading laws. But nonetheless, she was very much perceived at the time as a conservative figure, as a, as a culturally conservative figure. And it's a strange misremembering of the 80s to think that she was some kind of punk figure, as some people <laughs> have decided she is. I think, I think it's interesting because I, I suspect that the way she was painted at the time may have been slightly different from what she actually was. But right. I mean, we've, we've fallen into that trap of talking about Margaret Thatcher, which I didn't want to do. We've because... got to get over her, because if nothing else, there, there is so much more to the history of, of British conservatism than Maggie Thatcher, who was responding to very specific socio and economic circumstances, which have now so dramatically changed that the idea that you would do what people think she did but didn't really do, but you would try and do that anyway right now, I think is very odd. Well, let's talk about some other sound conservative leaders that Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak can look back on and maybe take some inspiration from. Mm. So can you give some examples? I mean, who are your favourite Tory leaders who, who they can learn from? <laughs> well, first of all, I don't, I don't think it's a, a question of anyone. See, see, that very word sound is suspicious, and it's something people use nowadays. Whenever there's a conservative discussion, they always go, sound, sound. Uh, the implication, again, is that there is some timeless and universal way of doing conservatism. There isn't. Conservatism has varied from generation to generation. It has always exhibited certain prejudices and tastes and preferences, but it has changed so radically over time. That is what has allowed it to stay relevant and allowed it to stay on top. So it, I, I very much approve of Disraelian philosophy, of, of the one nation of Disraeli. Again, it would be unrecognizable today. It would make no sense to people today. The idea that the great crisis in Britain was really modernity. Uh, that a group of middle-class uh, professionals, experts, if you will, had taken over government and through free trade had destroyed people's lives. They had subjugated the working class. And what we needed now to save the true medieval England, to revive it, was an alliance between the working class and the aristocrats that took the form of, uh, of social reform legislation. I mean, none of this has a great deal of relevance to people today. But uh, poetically, romantically, I find it very attractive. Or Stanley Baldwin, who was about trying to preserve an idea of Britain against the pace of change. Uh, or Harold Macmillan, who again was trying to forge a role for Britain in a post-imperial world. I'm not sure any of these can be... I don't think you can point to any of these and say, do that. That would be ridiculous. My point is simply that uh, each generation has produced someone who... who provides a conservative vision which is relevant to the times. And I don't think either of these two have done that yet. So on that point about Macmillan, 
You mm. talk about his trying to recover from the great loss of the British Empire. Yeah. Has Britain ever really recovered from that imperial decline? Oh, gosh. Well, we've, we've done a video before in which we, dis- in which we discussed this, and, and, uh, and I take the view um, that actually the working classes did much better after the em- end of empire, thanks in part to the welfare state, uh, but also globalization and many other things. So, I, so I'm reluctant to say that Britain never quite recovered. But the more I think about this subject, and I, I must write more about it, the more I think that the pivotal moment in, in uh, British modern history is, is 1945. It's when the war ends and Britain is ruined. And a decision has to be taken about how you're going to revive the country. What are you going to do? Um, and the real choice faced in the 40s was between the Labour Party, which said, uh, let us try to collectively recover and build the new Jerusalem, build a welfare state, versus the right, which is the milieu from which Oakshot comes at this time. The right says, no, we want to go back to the 30s. Things were good before the war. How do we recreate that good time? And over those six years of the Labour government, the Labour government loses in 1951. It goes from that massive transformative landslide in 45 to 51. It loses because it alienates the middle class, because the middle class just become exhausted by the national effort to build the welfare state. And then when the Conservatives come in in 51 through to 64, what they're really doing is about unwinding that, releasing some of the pressure of that project by lowering taxes, by reviving the private market, and by empowering the middle classes again. Uh, So that, I think, is really the, the decisive moment. Do you want to try to create something new in Britain, a whole new social democratic state, which is really centrally designed? Or do you want to try to recreate the good old days? And do you want to create a society which is a greater private market, there's a thriving middle class and people are broadly speaking left alone? And I think that's, that decision is what the Conservatives under Macmillan tried to navigate um, quite successfully for a long time until eventually Macmillan just spent too much money uh, and people started to say things are getting inflationary. That's how Macmillan really falls apart is, this, is the tension between spending and inflation. Uh, but that's, that, I think, is the great choice, is, is do we try and build the social democratic state or do we, by and large, leave people alone? And what the Conservative Party has tried to do is straddle those two things. So Macmillan had his own resignation of his chancellor, was it 1958, was it Peter Thornycroft? That's right, about yes, yes. About this uh, inflationary... And uh, the debate is so similar to today. Uh, Macmillan took the view that uh, Boris took as a big spender and trust takes uh, as a tax cutter, uh, that we, we need to grow the economy, that the very basis for Conservatives being elected is that they guarantee economic growth. By contrast, Thornycroft and later Selwyn Lloyd took the view that you, if you do that, you're just going to create inflation, which is going to undermine our finances and destroy us in the long run. So you can't do it, which is closer to the Sunak point of view. So you see my point that there is still this age-old debate going on about the role of the state, how much we spend, the, the design of life, the vision of living that we have for ourselves, I think we're still seeing played out all those years later. This next question is one that Labour have been asking, maybe justifiably, maybe not, and we'll get into that. In the last 12 years, since the Conservatives have been in power, bearing in mind for five years they were in coalition with the Lib Dems, has anything... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Got better for, for Britain. I mean, culturally, mm. economically, socially, has anything improved? The answer is no. Um, but I, I will... I will it's important to add some caveats, and fascinatingly, most of them come from Cameron's era. Academies, I think the quality of education has improved, but it's been undermined by the lockdown. Um, and uh, what else? And universal credit. Universal credit was, uh, in, there were teething troubles, but it worked very well, and it was actually, that was actually proved by lockdown. Uh, so those were the two great reforms of that era. And of course, I'm sure that, for example, gay people would say, look, my life improved because I could get married. Again, that's a Cameron thing. But overall, um, I think the, the sad reality is we have undergone a decline in our living standards and we've undergone a decline in the state and the quality of the state and its provision uh, that probably began from the mid-noughties. I don't think it's, it's, it's a credit crunch. It's a post-credit crunch thing. But life has got uh, worse, we are poorer, and it's particularly difficult to be young. And it's very difficult to see what the Conservatives have done to improve that. And crucially, they've not even done the things that they've always supposed to want to do, and they had the opportunity to do it, which might not have improved life, but they at least would have been Conservative. For instance, where are my grammar schools? Right? I mean, I, I'm a huge grammar school fan. I know there are conservatives who say they don't work and they distract. But either way, it's a fundamental aspect of Tory identity that they're pro-grammar schools. Where are they? They opened one and they had to pretend it was a satellite school. And the other thing is, where's my fox hunt? You know, I want to go fox hunting. I don't personally want to go fox hunting. But isn't that a basic of Tory identity? It's, it's not just the freedom to chase a poor defenseless animal and kill it. It's the red jackets. It's the aristocracy. It's the rural setting. It's, it's, it's Victorian cutlery with images of fox hunts on it. And they haven't brought that back. So things have got worse, and they haven't ticked off basic conservative demands. I mean, there's other points, isn't there? I mean, housing, for example, that's, that's, right. that's a huge problem. And immigration, I mean, you know. Oh, OK. Yeah, that's a more substantive one than, than fox hunting. But immigration <laughs> immigration's the big one. I mean, that's yeah. been the big lie of the last 12 years. It's a lie. The Conservatives have consistently lied to you about immigration. When we were members of the EU, they had no control over European immigration, correct. But they had control over non-EU immigration, and they really did little about it. Now that we've lost, lost, left the EU, we have control over, as Tony Blair said, the less controversial aspect of immigration, which was Poles and Europeans coming here. But we still, uh, so we've, we've gained control over that, and that's fallen. But to compensate for it, non-European immigration has gone right up. The government is now in favour of controlling the borders, 
but leaving them open. So it's, it's, like they've, it's like they've got a new door, it's covered in locks, they've got a different key, they've got an alarm code, and they've just left the door open. And they've left it open because they want it to be open. Uh, either because they actually think immigration is a good thing, generally, culturally and economically, or because they have buckled under the warning that if you don't open it, the, the fruit will rot in the fields and people won't do the menial jobs, etc. So you've been consistently lied to about conservative positions on, on immigration. Uh, and I think that's morally reprehensible, whether you're for it or against it, for a party to get constantly re-elected on a perception that they are anti-immigration, but then for them to do the complete opposite. I think is, is ethically really dubious. And the other aspect is the illegal immigration. I mean, I think today, or, or maybe on Monday, I think we, we, we're looking to go to the, the highest ever number right. of boats c coming across the channel. Yeah. And this has been a problem for years, and it's yes. been a, a steady, you know, rising steadily. And they've lied about that too. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's another... I mean, really, immigration is, it has been just appalling, because on the immigration, what they constantly say is, uh, we have safe routes. You, they don't have safe routes. I mean, one of the largest groups of people coming to this country are Iranians. There are no effective Iranian safe routes, especially within Iran. In the case of Afghanistan, official government advice is we won't take you direct from Afghanistan, but if you can get to a third country, we'll, we'll consider you in the third country. But the official advice is don't leave Afghanistan and go to a third country. They have said yes to Hong Kongers. They've said yes to Ukrainians. But there are loads of other groups that are excluded for whom there are no safe routes. So to say we're going to close and enforce the borders uh, because we're going to make asylum legal and easier, to, uh, easier and safer to access, that's a lie. That's not what they've been doing. So it's quite easy for us as journalists to snipe on the sidelines and say, mm. these people have been lying to you and they've not got anything done and everything's got worse and it's all their fault. And I think, you know, justifiably in many cases we can say that. Yeah. However, if we were put into government as ministers and we believed in all these things, <laughs> would we have done a better job? I, I don't know. And, and the reason I ask that is because there are so many interest groups who are lined up against you. Let's yes. say even if you have those views, which, by the way, a lot of conservatives or conservative politicians may not even ha share these views. They may say this stuff in public or, or they may not. But, but let's say you, you do believe in these things that we're talking about and you try and get the stuff done. You've got the civil service. You've got big business. You've yes. got media companies, BBC, uh, you know, big charities, all lining up against you. Is Britain essentially unreformable? Here we come back to the Oakshottian question about experts. How can you in a democracy have a situation in which the people who run the country, every sector of it, violently disagree with perhaps a majority of the voters? And whatever the majority of the voters vote for, the experts will nonetheless ignore that and do the complete opposite. And crucially, not just physically do the opposite, but will also use their platforms through lobbying, through culture, through making television programs to promote the complete opposite. I mean, I made this point in a column about the Tavistock Clinic and, and trans rights. Whatever you think of that, it's an extraordinary situation in which you have this thing which is highly controversial, the idea that someone can change their sex by surgery. To the average man or woman in the street, that's a controversial proposition. Or that children can do it. Or especially that children are in a position, mentally and generationally, to make that kind of life-changing decision. For, to most people, some people will say they're all for it, some people will be against it. The point is it's controversial. But regardless of what actual policy is, equally disturbing is that culture makers are promoting it. I mean, who elected them to do that? And you can just say, well, you can just turn off. 
But of course, in this case, we have in Britain, we have this thing called the BBC, which we are compelled to pay for. I'm compelled to pay for program making that calls me a bigot and an idiot. That, that's the ultimate triumph of expertise in, in cultural and political life. So is Britain unreformable? It, it, it would be, we could at least push back against it if you had a government that itself culturally took a different view and stuck to its guns. But part of the problem is that the Conservatives, too many of them, fall into the same cultural milieu as the experts and share their views. They've not done many of these things because they were in favour of immigration, because they don't like fox hunting because they don't like grammar schools. That's why they've done those things. In most cases, the, the easiest explanation is usually idiocy. But an equally easy explanation is they didn't do it because they didn't want to do it. Now, I have this very childish view of history where I love, I'm obsessed with reading these biographies of these great men. Yes. Caesar, I'm reading one on Bismarck at the moment. <laughs> you know, I mentioned Salisbury earlier. You know, these people bent history to their will, they stopped the Thomas tide. Thomas Carlyle, of, yes, yes. Great, men, great men of history, yes, yes. Do you think that a great man or woman could come today and make these reforms if they merely had the will and the skill to do so? Is it possible? It, I mean, you know, today yeah. there's so much more bureaucracy and there's so much more accountability and there's this, this media sort of eye on you 24-7, there's social media, there's all of these things seem to make life impossible for someone with a big personality to be able to, to mm. move those tides of history. Trump tried and he failed. This isn't an endorsement of Trumpism. He's just an example of a great man of history. But he failed because the will isn't enough, because you've also got to be good and cleverer. Uh, a key question is, does the person trying to do this believe they can do it? And I think, uh, I think one person who believes they can is Kemi Badenoch. Uh, and again, this isn't an endorsement, but there I think is someone who has the self-confidence, the ideas and the intellectual package to want to try to reverse those things. And I think that's, I, I think it's that combination. But as you know, uh, the great man theory is debunked. You, you can only do something insofar as there are the social forces to promote you uh, or to make it possible for something to happen. You, you don't just do something by yourself. But one thing that helps is consistency, and I've been very impressed in my time as a journalist uh, by Jeremy Corbyn and Nigel Farage as two examples of people who said the same thing for about 20 years. And if you keep saying the same thing, and if you turn up to every branch meeting, and you go to every protest, and you say yes to every TV interview, at some point in that 20 years, the public will say, maybe they've got a point. So one thing to do is just to consistently stick to something. And then eventually your time will come. Well, it helps when events, I suppose, prove Move you on your way, of yeah. course. And in both <laughs> cases, they were handed a gift. But you've got to be ready and in position to take it. And the problem with too many people like me, I'm a, I, in, in personality terms, I'm a gadfly. I get bored and move on to other things, is I'm not willing to put in the effort. And you say, how would I change things if I was elected? I have too much faith in the British people to ever believe they would elect me. They're far too sensible <laughs> to elect me. <laughs> So there's this enlightenment view of history that we're all progressing towards this utopia mm. and that there's this timeline of history that's always going up like this. Yes, and the arc of history exactly. bends to progress. Exactly. Yes. And in some ways, in the last few hundred years, you know, when you, if you look at life expectancy and advancements in medicines and everything else, you mm. can see obviously huge gains. And even in the last... 20, 30 years, especially globally, yes. there's been a, yes. a, a significant shift uh, for the better. Yes. 
However, when we're looking at the West, because we're in the West, we're in Britain, we, you know, that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, in the 90s and the early noughties, you had this wonderful period of pretty good economic growth, especially in the early noughties, you know, v- varied in the 90s. But in particular, this cultural, you know, I don't know, this, this fantastic era where free speech was, was booming, yes. where you had this, people were making these fantastic offensive TV shows and you could kind of say what you want <laughs> and, you know, there wasn't this Twitter yes. to, to cancel you and all this stuff. Do you think that that was an anomaly in history and that we are now returning to kind of normality in a way in terms of economic stagflation or stagnation and cultural authoritarianism and in this case it's kind of wokeism it it proves that the notion that there is a seamless line of progress which few enlightenment thinkers would endorse but the idea that there is a seamless line of, of progress is nonsense history actually goes up and down and in the case of what you're talking about with say the internet uh, technology at first liberates and then the powerful adjust to accommodate it and eventually to take it over and to use it to their advantage. So, um, for instance, when the Arab Spring kicked off, initially social media was a, a, was a, a driving force. People were organising protests online. But then the, the authoritarian regimes began to realise that they could track what people were doing by looking at their Twitter accounts and they could actually use this as a method of control. And likewise, the iPhone might have once been seen as the ultimate, had the world in your pocket as the ultimate liberation, but now China's worked out how it can use it to track people's movements. Uh, and it's introduced a whole new social, weird social credit uh, system whereby it, it, can, it can reward or punish people for their level of social conformity. So, but then if you go back in time, you think about the printing press. Initially, it's liberating. It's one of the things that helps to uh, dent the authority of the Catholic Church. But then it's very quickly used by both sides for propaganda. Uh, and then eventually it, it's used for coercion and for control. Uh, so I, I would say this is, this is proof that far from history moving in one seamless direction, it goes up and down and back and forth. And sure, if you look at those graphs, which uh, the wonks online are always keen to bring out of showing how long people live or how much money they make, then history is like that and then suddenly it goes like that in the last hundred years and you think, we've nailed it, we've nailed it. But of course, if you sort of think of it in civilizational terms, you can see it far more up and down like that. You sort of get the height, the peak in Europe, at least at the Roman Empire, then you get a right drop down, and then you get a slow revival by the, by the time of the millennium, and you get the medieval, but then you get suddenly Genghis Khan turns up on, on, on our border and things like that. It goes right down again, up and down. Civiliz- Genghis Khan's civilization only lasts, what, one, two hundred years. So the reality is, is it goes up and down, uh, and it would be the height of naivety to think that things are just going to keep getting better. And to come back to conservatism, this is what conservatism has got to confront. Uh, it, here in Britain, we absorbed this daft American idea that the point of uh, conservatism is every generation is richer than the last. It's preposterous. It's unconservative. How can you even theoretically get richer and richer and richer until a point of infinite uh, richness? It's, it's just preposterous. We've got to, as con- what conservatives have got to do is to draw attention back to culture, family, religion, and say to people, there's a different kind of richness. Yeah, we want people to keep more of their money. We want them to make money. We want them to own their own home. But I think you can measure the success of, success of a society by also, are people having kids? Are they good parents? Uh, are they reading to their kids? Are they taking them to church? There are so many other ways of judging the success of a society, which conservatives don't talk about because they're still hooked on this bizarre import of the American dream. 
Is it the role of the politician to intervene in these cultural spheres? And I'll give you an example, again, harking back to that great late Victorian Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, who was, who was Prime Minister 13 years at the end of the 19th century. And when the, the Boer War happened under him, mm. and he didn't view it as his role to inspire the nation, to make great speeches, to rile up patriotic frenzy after victories at Mafeking or whenever. Mm. He thought that was the role of the, of the church to yes. do that. Yes. Um, do you think that it is politicians' roles to get involved in these cultural debates, or should we leave it to journalists and to other people? There was a very obvious culture and character debate between Disraeli and Gladstone. They provided extraordinary contrasts, uh, both in their beliefs and also in their manner. The Disraeli, if Boris is like anyone, he's like Disraeli, um, uh, whereas Gladstone was far more puritanical and uh, spent those unwise evenings trying to rescue prostitutes from the street and things like that. So uh, there's always been that. Um, The question is if there is no church to do it. If the church isn't saying conservative things, then do politicians have a responsibility to try to fill the gap? I don't know. I think that you've got to do it in a sensitive and intelligent way. I hate it when prime ministers record videos for Diwali or Easter or Christmas. I'm sick of it. They're not the Archbishop of Canterbury. But equally, do I want a prime minister to feel that they can't comment on a wave of drug addiction? No, that'd be preposterous. Do I think a prime minister should comment on uh, the decline of the family and the fact that people aren't having kids? I think it'd be very strange if they didn't, especially because, as I say, we live in a point where it's not just the state has been diminished, but many of our institutions are exhausted and much smaller, and they're not doing it. So it might just be that politicians have to say something because no one else will. Now, you and I think about these topics probably quite frequently about the collapse of our civilization. Well, perhaps I think about that more than you do. Um, But I'm certain, you know, we're reading this stuff. We're on YouTube. We're looking at these lectures. We're listening to these podcasts. We find it absolutely fascinating. Yes. Whereas I suspect Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak maybe haven't done that or maybe don't do that. Do you think there's an ignorance or certain ignorance within conservative politicians today? And I know you're going to talk about Kemi because you absolutely love Kemi. But um, do you think <laughs> mostly, you know, accept Kemi. Yes. Uh, are, are conservative politicians ignorant of the, of the topics that we've just discussed? I don't think ignorance is perhaps the fair word because, again, I think it's generational. I suspect Liz Truss is actually more interested in Ronald Reagan, uh, Ayn Rand, Friedman, Hayek, Uh, and a very American and European kind of approach to liberty and the state than she's actually interested in Thatcher, let alone Disraeli and Macmillan or conservatism. And and that's that's par for the course for that generation who were really Thatcher's children and grew up in the shadow of that extraordinary partnership of Reagan and Thatcher, which, as I say, the cultural dimension of which has been forgotten. People have forgotten the role of the moral majority played in the election of, of Ronald Reagan, for instance. They've also forgotten the slightly shadowy issue of race. Um, so I think it's, it's partly that. Uh, you mentioned Kemi, but I thought it's very interesting that, that Kemi likes to quote, for instance, Thomas Sowell. And I suspect she's getting that from watching video clips uh, and interviews online. Uh, I am part of the YouTube generation. A lot of my education and what conservatism is, because I, I, my, my intellectual background is Marxist, not conservative. So a lot of my understanding of what conservatism is initially came from watching uh, William F. Buckley on YouTube and uh, those great... Um, uh, that, that uh, great Hoover Institute set of interviews online. Peter so, Robinson. R- yeah. Peter Robinson. So I've been very much educated by the internet as to what conservatism is. Uh, so I, I think there's a generational change. And you're going to, I notice when talking to younger people, they talk in civilizational terms. 
uh, and that's not true of the previous generation. They're much more concerned about not just what's happening to society, but how am I living? Am I healthy? Is my headspace being corrupted by the internet? Uh, do I need to speak more to my family? What, tell me what books to read. People are asking questions like that that they weren't asking 10 or 20 years ago. Do you know what's interesting is I think there's this great debate online uh, and in newspaper columns, of course, about housing. And I'll, I'll say why this links in with what we're talking about. Because there's this thesis that basically conservatives are going to lose all of their voters under 40 yeah. because they can't afford a house. And there's lots of economic problems that faces young people, which is true. Mm. You know, and, that, and as you say, their parents are probably richer than their children. However, I think many young people are thinking about these other topics of values, mm. of, of civilization. You know, when they look at the left's reaction to the culture wars and the, the sort of the woke activists and the extremists. Yes. Are they going to start voting Labour because of houses? I don't know. Maybe uh, it's an interesting discussion, isn't it? That question of cultural space and the economic kind of you know, problems that people face. I, I don't think that this idea that all conservative young people are going to turn to the left because of economic problems. I think there is, you know, yeah. there are other things going on. I feel very out of touch with people under 30, which is <laughs> it's it just, it just purely because of age. Um, and I suspect when I look at the culture they consume, I suspect they most of them have imbibed the cultural values of the left and will probably take some time to shrug that off. And you do get cultural moments which are usually ones of reaction, uh, which can stick with people through their entire lives. So the late 60s generation of a very specific few years, people who lived through, lived through that period tend to vote left-wing for the rest of their lives because it has such a profound impact upon their worldview. Mm. And it might be that the combination of the experience of being impoverished of being pulled out of the EU against their will and cultural liberalism and particularly the gender stuff, it might mean there's just a sort of cohort of between about, I don't know, 25 and 35 who are just lost. There are some wonks online who think the solution is to give them a free house. <laughs> and I, okay, build some houses. They've got to be attractive. I don't think they have to be everywhere. But at the same time, I am wary of destroying what's good about Britain. And one of the good things about Britain, particularly the South, is that it's pretty. Uh, and I live in one of those areas where we are designated for thousands of houses and we do not have the services to support it. So you're a NIMBY then. I mean, but the a other bit thing, of a NIMBY. Yeah, yes. I mean, the other thing is immigration. You know, that's the, you know, yeah. we talk about supply and demand. Why do people say build houses never talk about uh, never talk about immigration. Who's moving into them? I have, I have absolutely no idea. And immigration and the change that's brought to the country is one of the biggest stories of the last 20 years. And it's not really discussed. And it's not necessarily a problem. I'm not saying it's a problem. But I think we probably need, the right probably needs to uh, intelligently adjust definitions of Britishness to keep up with it and to keep on top of it. Otherwise, they're liable to be drawn away to something else. They're li what, what I don't want is for Britishness to become diversity and inclusion. Not because I'm against either, but because I don't think you can define a nation state by diversity and inclusion. Those two things can, they can, they can be of I think value. there's a debate to be had about, you know. They can be of value, yeah. but I, 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 nonetheless, I don't, my country is not defined to me by diversity and inclusion. When, I, when I'm asked, what is Britain? I think it's Shakespeare, cream teas, Dover, Scotland, Tartan, uh, Welsh choirs. It's a long list of cultural things. It's not diversity and The worst thing is, um, is that phrase, British values. I have no idea what they are. They're rubbish, and they usually are actually an expression of an absence of values. Usually what people will say when pushed is they'll say, tolerance, well, tolerance is rubbish. I could, I could tolerate my neighbours 
stomping about above me every evening. It doesn't mean I like them or ever speak to them. <laughs> Tolerance does not create national community. It doesn't. It just means we put up with each other. Okay. Final question on uh, of the interview, but on, on conservatism. Should we become radical? Is it the time that conservatives should become reformers and want to overturn these institutions that have been captured by the left? Mm. Or should we try and conserve what is good and in a way be on a sort of cultural defensive with a big shield, sort of trying to stop any other crazy initiatives coming because there's no point in trying to sort of revolutionise the way the state works, for example, because that always ends in failure and, uh, and you know, utopias and all these things. It's a combination of the two. There was a very good column written by Alistair Heath in which he explained to those outsiders who wouldn't get it that conservatives now see themselves as radicals. Uh, historically, they existed to defend inherited institutions. But some of those institutions, not all of them, have been so ridiculously corrupted and are so unfit for purpose that the conservative position now is to take them back over and either shut them down or transform them and return them to fundamental basic principles. If I could wave a wand, one thing I'd love to do is to be appointed to run the BBC. And I would make it like the 1950s or 60s again. It would be educational, cultural, uh, and it would go back to being a proper service and family orientated and all those sorts of things. Uh, So it's not that I want to tear things down and destroy them, but they have to be saved from themselves. Businesses have to be, church has to be, culture has to be saved from itself. And I think that's the role of an intelligent conservative now, is to try to save Western civilization from itself. Thank you, Tim Stanley. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.